0: We're all learning to live with the new normal. This will be the new normal. The new normal.
1: The COVID pandemic has just felt like, like extinguishing fires left and right.
2: You're listening to No New Normal, a special edition of CKUT's Off the Hour. The series aims to unpack the questions raised by the COVID-19 outbreak, examining the rifts exposed by the pandemic and the convergent struggles that are emerging in the aftermath of the quarantine. No new normal broadcast from Jojage, the unceded territory of the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee Nations. You can catch us here on CKUT 90.3 every other Friday at 5 p.m. I'm Athena Khalid with Emily Black and James Ward. Stay tuned for our first episode, Crises of Care on COVID-19 in long-term care facilities. Today's episode is Crises of Care, COVID-19 and CHSLDs. Quebec's CHSLDs have come under scrutiny since the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak in the province, which is currently the epicenter of Canada's COVID-19 cases. CHSLDs, Centre d'hébergement de Soins de longue durée, serve as long-term care centres in Quebec. Of the over 5,000 COVID-19-related deaths in the province, of them have occurred at CSRDs, with another 18% reported at private elder care facilities. Deaths at long-term care facilities make up nearly 90% of all the COVID-19 related deaths in the province. In the media and in public discourse, these deaths are presented as inevitable. COVID-19 has a disproportionately high mortality rate among the elderly, and CSRDs are largely made up of elderly residents. But as no new normal found, this logic normalizes the almost 5,000 deaths in long-term care facilities, rather than questioning why the outbreak has so heavily affected them. Why was it more done to prevent outbreaks of COVID-19 in Seyaches What caused the widespread outbreaks in long-term care facilities? And what does the state of long-term care in the province say about the way we think about care, about the preservation of life, about aging, and about death and dying? Here's Kitra Kahana's take
3: the COVID-19 pandemic has pulled back the curtain on systemic racism, systemic ableism, and systemic ageism. And that's what we're seeing in the CHSO days where you have a majority of the workers are women of color and the policies in place do not support them. You have residents who are elderly and disabled And I think, I think the pandemic has exposed that those people are out of sight, they're out of mind, and we're willing to sacrifice them. And my message is that our loved ones, we're not willing to let our loved ones be sacrificed and letting our elders be sacrificed.
2: Later in the episode, we'll delve into the COVID-19 outbreaks in long-term care facilities in Quebec. But first, here's No New Normals, James Ward, to give us a bit of background on the CHSLD system.
4: Yeah, so CHSLD stands for Santé-Bachement de Soins de Longue-Durée, and it's basically a governmentally administered long-term care facility in Quebec. The sort of classic image of the Sayashasal Day is the public so Day, where the whole thing is governmentally run, it's under the Ministry of Health, The all the people are being paid directly from the Quebec government. But there are also private Sayashasal Days that are regulated by the government and have to follow, in theory, a lot of the same protocols in terms of charging people and so forth. But they're run for profit. And they're just being paid from the RAMQ, from the Quebec health insurance system. But the actual running of them is done by a private organization. And then additionally, they're not really considered days, but there are just fully private long-term care facilities that people can go to if they want to, and that are unrelated to the government. And they're just completely private facilities. But a day technically refers to uh, either a public or private facility that's regulated by the government in uh this network of facilities. This has changed, and I think we'll talk about that more later. But in general, to get into a Seyash Day, you have to require medical care more or less 24-7. In theory, that's anyone who has some kind of medical condition that needs constant care and that's going to need that care for a long time. But in practice, the Seyash Days are more or less filled with elderly people, which makes sense in some sense, but that that's not necessarily in the definition of them, right? They're not necessarily defined as elderly homes. They're defined as long-term care homes. And I think it's important to make that distinction because it's not necessarily a elderly care facility. In theory, like someone who might need care for a couple of years could go there and it could eventually come out. But in practice, it ends up functioning more like a hospice care facility. So the... The average length of a stay at the CSA day is 18 months, meaning that after 18 months, most people who were at the Seychelles day are probably dying. And th- that was the case before the coronavirus outbreak.
2: In late February, Quebec had its first confirmed case of COVID-19. By March 12th, the number of cases reached the double digits. Provincial borders were closed and a public health emergency was declared. Though bars closed on March 15th and large gatherings were banned on the 22nd, It took until April 10th for the Legault government to announce mandatory testing for workers at long-term care facilities. By April 20th, the infection rate in long-term care facilities was as high as 75%, and military personnel from the Canadian Armed Forces were deployed to centres due to severe understaffing. Although the government has launched a training program to fast-track 10,000 new PABs, préposés aux bénéficiaires, or orderlies, for CHSLDs by the fall, It has significantly decreased the frequency of testing for staff coming in and out of centers in the recent weeks. Once the virus was present at any given facility, infection rates increased exponentially, and deaths grew to an alarming rate almost overnight. Thirty-one people died at the Maison Héran long-term care facility in Dorval by April 12th. On April 16th, 38 residents of the Greystart Extended Care Center in Ochelaga Maisonneuve tested positive, and by the next day, 62 had COVID-19, including 13 staff members. By early May, 27 people had died at de Jeffrey hale in Quebec City, and 64 had died. It isn't just elderly residents who have died. At least five orderlies have died after contracting COVID-19 at their workplace. And while François Legault portrayed himself as a competent leader at the start of the quarantine, the Quebec government's response to the pandemic has made the pattern of government negligence and indifference with regards to long-term care facilities clear. Here's Kitra Kahana discussing her father's experience as a resident at a CHZD and her experience organizing around better conditions for residents.
3: My name is Kitra Kahana. I'm a photojournalist and filmmaker. My father is a resident at a CHSOZ in Cote Saint-Luc. And in the last three months, I've been advocating for long-term care facilities by CHSOZs. At the end of February, early March, I, you know, as everyone started learning more and more about COVID-19, um, it almost immediately became clear to me that my father's life was in danger as a resident of SHS Um, All of the reports were indicating how vulnerable those spaces were because you have large numbers of people living in close quarters, meeting. Uh, intimate care you know and you can't do care from six feet away all of the care is close contact and the workers are coming in and out of the building so at a facility like my father's where you have nearly 400 residents that clearly becomes quite dangerous and so I tried to put in a put a plan into place to bring him home. But like most residents of long-term care facilities, it just wasn't possible. The level of care that most residents need is extremely high. So even though experts were saying, if you have family in these facilities, see if you can take them out because it is so dangerous, Um, it's just not possible for most people due to financial limitations, limitations of space at home, and just the, the, the overwhelming uh, workload that it takes to care for somebody. People don't realize how much work this is to care for an elderly person or a person with disabilities in a long-term care facility. And so when it became clear that we couldn't bring my father home, I said, okay, I'm going to do... Absolutely, everything within my power to make sure that the correct policies are in place, um, that we're following best practices, and ultimately saving the most, not the most number of lives in in my father's nursing home, but also in all nursing homes. Because what this really comes down to is uh, policies, government policies, and countries that have implemented. Policies that have protected the residents and protected the workers have seen very little uh, deaths, deaths in the long-term care facilities, whereas like we're seeing in Quebec, we're now we're coming close to 5,000 deaths in long-term care facilities in few days. Um, it's just clear that government negligence is what led to the, the situation that we see.
2: So what does this government negligence look like? Well, for one, it's years of budget cuts and understaffing. But it's also the lack of preparedness for a pandemic, the lack of organization once the pandemic was clearly en route, lack of supplies and protective gear, and a lack of testing for workers coming in and out of centers. In April, Alexander reached out to several residences to find work at a long term care facility. She was hired at a private facility as an orderly. She shared her experience with no new normal. We were
5: engaged, and we didn't really Puis je suis arrivée, euh je suis arrivée là, on m'a dit que c'était rentré demain à huit, je suis arrivée là à huit heures. Euh, je suis arrivée dans le bureau comme dans un dans un bureau, je savais même pas où aller, il y a personne qui y a personne qui savait que j'arrivais. Puis là, je suis arrivée, euh, j'étais comme moi, Pis on m'a dit que j'allais travailler ici, on m'a dit euh, en tant que préposé. J'ai dit bah je sais pas, là, on m'a vraiment rien dit, là, je viens juste donner mon mail, puis <rire> c'est ça. Là, ils m'ont juste dit, OK, bien, tu vas être préposé. J'ai commencé à suivre, genre, une autre préposée pendant une journée, comme je la suivais, puis elle me montrait, tu sais, elle, toutes les toilettes partielles qu'elle fait, mettons, euh, donner les médicaments, donner, euh, changer les changer les, les culottes d'inconscience. Et pour ma petite là les laver répond dans son petit peu, chaque matin y a comme des petites cloches là dans leur chambre puis, euh, puis ils s'ils tombent ils ont besoin de quelque chose elle veut c'est à montrer comment faire ça puis dès la deuxième journée dans le fond j'étais comme c'est des fois ils venaient m'aider mais sinon j'étais quasiment toute seule euh mais les couches, les laver. Je tout un
2: It's telling that the facility was so understaffed that they hired someone to take on such demanding work without any of the necessary qualifications. Amy, whose name has been changed to maintain her privacy, has worked as and it's affiliated CRCLD as a housekeeper for the last two years. She described how CRCLD handled COVID
1: 19. Um, I'm a housekeeper, so I essentially clean. Mm-hmm. I cleaned, and disinfect and stuff like that. The whole pandemic just feels like it was just like ex- extinguishing fires left and right. The, the second, like, some something. You'd, you'd finish dealing with something, like, something else would come up, and it's just like, oh, fuck, I have to go deal with this. At the beginning, um, we we were just, like, all the staff, we were like, okay, well, how is this going to affect us? What are what our, our supervisors going to do about it? And they kind of, like, for the most part, dragged it out a bit, um, and we were left in the dark. We, it was, most of it, we had to do, like, judgment calls, which kind of sucked because we had to act by ourselves without like our, super, our supervisors or superiors or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. I, I can't talk about the other sites, but the site where I'm currently at, um, they didn't really talk much about, like, COVID and like, what we were going to do to, like, um, as like uh, preventative measures or whatever until, like, after Quebec was like, hey, like, this a pandemic, stay home. Then um, we started getting notices at work saying, like, okay, well, this is what you have to do. But before that, it was like, oh, business as usual. Even though everyone was aware that a pandemic was coming, we were we were kind of like kept in the dark a bit. It's administration's fault, but also like personal superior's fault, because like they didn't really plan it. They kept us in the dark a lot. And I remember at one point, I had to like keep on calling um, one of my one of my bosses to get information because. the uh, nursing staff was telling me one thing. The PAV staff was telling me another. And then um, I called my boss to, like, to confront him with him. He said, I'm going to talk to inf- infection control because it, w- it was about a positive COVID-positive case. And the um, patient wasn't coughing or anything like that, but the patient was positive. And they wanted – we didn't have any masks at the time, and they wanted me to go and, like, clean that room. And I was like, no, I'm not going to go do that. That's really stupid. And um, infection control apparently was like, oh, no, it's fine if you go do that um, as long as, like, because the the patient's not coughing. And I was like, whether the patient's coughing or not, I'm I'm being put into a dangerous situation without any of the proper protection equipment. Mm -hmm. I'm not going in there. And then the whole, like, ordeal started. It's a, that's an example, like, mm-hmm. from the top of my head, of, like, the kind of lack of organization and communication mm-hmm. kind of thing. Because nursing and PAB were, like, don't go in there. Like, we have masks, we have face shields and stuff like that. But, like, you don't, doesn't really make sense for you to go. Mm-hmm. And especially because you have um, you have other places to go, like, on, on the, in the building. So, like, if you go in there, you're going to, be possibly contaminating the rest of the building. So yeah, it's just, it just, it's a big headache. It was kind of, it's also like really weird because like rationally, if someone's work has worked in a hospital and you're not gonna send them, somewhere where there's no cases and there hasn't been cases for two weeks but um one of my supervisors was trying to like switch me around because um someone was being difficult another housekeeper was being difficult and I told him I was like on the phone I was like if I go onto that side you're gonna have to find someone to come and replace me for the next following weekends because I can't come back to this side and he was like no it's fine like tomorrow you can come back because you're going to shower tonight. And I was like, no, that's, like, that's not, <laughs> I was like, that's not how it works. So I was talking to one of the, um, to the, um, nurse in charge. And I, I just like wanted to double check with her. And I remember I went up to her and I was like, Oh, Hey, by the way, like, I just want to know if I'm going crazy or not. It's not irrational of me to like say, I can't go to one side because it's a hot zone. And then say like, I can't come back here because I've worked in a hot zone the day before and she was like yeah you're not allowed to come back here like we're allowed to to refuse you i was like okay exactly i was like see god damn it and at the beginning of the pandemic uh they called me and they're like can you work during the week i said i can work during the week however i am not going to different sites i mean if, if you need me to work at this site that's fine i will work Sundays days out of seven if you need like, I have no problem with that. But I'm not going from one place to one place from a hot zone to a cold zone because not only do I have, like, the patients, to, the patients that they have to keep in mind, I also have a staff. I also have uh, my mom and my stepdad. My mom, if I get it, she can get it, and she can give it to her patients and her staff. So it's, like, it's, it's a really big chain of reactions. Right. And they were just like they're just like, Oh, okay, so you're unwilling to work at other places and I was like, Yeah, I'm unwilling to work at other places <laughs> I was like, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm gonna I'm not am not gonna fight with you guys. Like you can write whatever, like just like I could I spoke to my supervisor about it and I was like, listen, like the biggest problem I have is if I get it, like my mom can get it, and then that becomes a problem. Like I don't mind if, if I get it, like that's my problem. If my mom gets it, she can get give it to her patients, and then that becomes a huge problem. I I said that I wasn't gonna move around, but you know, like some people that I work with, um, it's and it's, I've mostly seen it with housekeepers. Um, I have I at the beginning I saw it a bit with um with the PABS and stuff like that, the nursing staff were more or less regular. and um, if they had to be replaced, they were replaced for like long term. but um, it's mostly with housekeepers that get sent from like one place to another. Like one of the housekeepers I was working with, she on during the weekdays, uh, she worked in a place where like now now it's, now they're okay, but before almost all the residents were positive. And then she would come to an extremely cold zone where um, maybe like one patient would have it. And then it's like kind of just to put that into context. It's like, why would you, like, I understand that, you know, we're, we're lacking staff, but why would you put someone who is, was in such like a very like dangerous hot zone and then put them in like a cold zone like that? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. There's no logic behind that.
2: It's clear that de management was not only unprepared for a pandemic, but was also relatively unresponsive as the pandemic threatened to hit facilities. Some of Amy's supervisors even insisted that she move from hot zones, zones with cases of the virus, to cold zones, zones without known carriers. And numerous reports state similar findings at other Cerceldes. Administrative mismanagement, uneven maintenance of hot and cold zones, insufficient supplies for workers, all of which risked the lives of workers and residents. A report by the Canadian Armed Forces states that many good practices were ignored. The irregular application of hot and cold zones especially presented a direct and negative effect on patients' hygiene. In late April, the union representing nurses and orderlies in Laurentians spent $25,000 on PPE after their employer, the C.S. de Laurentide, failed to provide adequate equipment.
3: One of the first things I did was I said, okay, families need to be connected because in a critical situation like this, I really believe that transparency is what saves lives and networks save lives, um, and obviously good policy, good infection control. But the more transparency and networks that we have, the more we can advocate as a unit um, and not and, and support each other. So I created a Facebook page for family members of my father, Sasha Fossey, we started doing initiatives for the frontline workers, trying to organize some meals, um, uh, getting PPE for the workers when it wasn't available, um, and just all around trying to respond to the, to the needs of, of the workers, because protecting the workers is really the way to protect the residents.
2: Kitra's work is commendable, but the fact that she had to organize around the needs of residents and workers suggests that the government was doing so little to respond to the crisis. Here's Jonathan Marchand, a resident at a CHLD. My
0: name is Jonathan Marchand. I'm an advocate for people with disabilities. I'm 43 years old. I'm a person with a disability. I use a ventilator to breathe with um, tracheostomy. I've been living inside uh, a facility for about 10 years now, and I've been fighting um, all along to get out of my facility, to live in the community like any other citizen. But the issue is there are no support system in Quebec for people that need to live uh, at home, and it's, uh, it's a big issue. Actually, most people with severe disabilities end up in institutions in Quebec because of the lack of support. Here, yeah, there's been no outbreak. However, in the area, I mean, about 30% of facilities were infected with COVID 19, and some of them have, uh, you know, 50 people dead, and it's quite tragic, actually. And we're very wide open for an infection here as well. Uh to me it's only a matter of time before it happens. Every day we erode the dice. Um so the um the situation is I mean it's a tragedy. Thousands of people die, Uh lots of people are calling in question, uh long term care facilities, they're asking questions. How did we get to that point? Uh, and the, the, the issue is that it's the existence of these places. It, they are dangerous places. These are reputed to be violent, to create abuse. And um, as you see, we so describe this to hurt uh, people. Um, who are at risk of, uh, of uh, you know, having a, a, a severe reaction to the virus is a um, is very very bad idea because in a long-term care facility, you're way more likely to catch the virus, most likely it's the employees who will uh, bring the virus, and uh, it's just a bad idea to uh, put people who are at risk in places like these. And people don't realize that penumped care facilities infect the communities surrounding these places. So it's a public health issue now. If we don't control the infections in um, facilities, then the whole society pays the price. And it's been uh, acknowledged by... Uh, the public uh, health um, authority in in Quebec, health workers are spreading the virus in the in the community. So I think the solution is less people inside facilities. It's to eventually to, to develop a strong support system so that everyone can live at home safely and eventually close down uh, facilities to abolish that that model, it's a threat to the whole society. We we need to do something about that, and uh, the uh, political parties on the left or the right, some of them are calling for the closure of facilities. But to get there, we need a strong support uh, system in the community.
2: These deaths, then, were not inevitable. It's true that COVID-19 has a high mortality rate among the elderly, those who are immunocompromised, those with respiratory conditions, and those with comorbidity conditions. Given that Seychelles are residences for those in need of full-time or near-full-time care, its residents are particularly susceptible. However, that doesn't mean that their deaths were inevitable. As Jonathan says, the conditions at these facilities make it nearly impossible to contain an infectious disease.
3: And it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. Other countries have proven, not even other countries, BC, the province of BC, proved that with the right policies and the right leadership, these deaths did not need to take place. With testing, you know, at at my father's facility, there still there isn't frequent and ongoing testing of the staff. Early in March, when I was first reading about COVID-19 and long-term care, it was abundantly clear that the way to manage the situation was through testing, contact tracing, and isolation, amongst other policies. And that still has not been implemented here in Quebec. And that's why we see the
6: the number of deaths that we do.
2: No New Normal's Emily Black compared BC's response to the pandemic to Quebec's.
6: BC is a really interesting um, comparison with Quebec. Um, and they did things sort of almost opposite, I think, in terms of um, trying to control the outbreaks in residential care homes. Um, so the one of the unique things about BC is they have um, the provincial health officer, whose name is Dr. Bonnie Henry, um, sort of running the show over there. Um, and she kind of calls the shots and um, the health minister and the provincial government sort of follows. Um, so I think um, early on in March, um, once outbreaks in residential care homes began over there, um, Dr. Henry ordered that um, no nurses or personal support workers can move between facilities and that they would be limited to only one facility um, until, I think, until the uh, facility was their outbreak was over. Long-term residential care homes were also prioritized by the government for giving, getting a supply of testing and per, uh, protective equipment. And so that resulted in aggressive and frequent testing for both residents and workers. So if workers were, employees were found to be positive, they would stay home. Whereas in Quebec, the Legault government actually lifted the uh, two-week isolation requirement to one week so that the uh, staff members could go back to work if they were asymptomatic, um, but still tested positive. Yeah, in April, personal support workers were asked to break quarantine after only one week if they were asymptomatic. And at the end of April, on the 25th, Quebec gave a province-wide okay to have health workers be redistributed between facilities all across the Quebec network. In Vancouver, you have a $10 million program to cover lost wages and to ensure that, that employees are able to stay in their facility and stay working. Whereas in Quebec, there was it was just part of the four billion dollar the federal four billion dollar fund to cover emergency bonuses for the frontline workers. When the health minister Health Minister McCann um, approved healthcare workers moving, um, and that that. Um, As a sort of solution to the understaffing during COVID, Um, she had said that that was just a stopgap measure uh, with the priority being on getting more staff and so that there could be enough staff at each facility. Uh, But that was all the way back in April. And I think we're still seeing that.
2: But Alexandra says this is nothing new.
5: Je pense que ça un peu, mais là, c'est surtout que, tu sais, toutes les mesures, ça complique vraiment notre travail, mmh. toutes, les, toutes les mesures sanitaires qu'on doit rajouter, ça complique vraiment le travail, ça le rallonge beaucoup aussi mais sinon je veux dire ça genre j'en ai parlé parce que j'étais pas au courant de ce avant puis on m'a dit là c'est maintenant que ça qu'on en parle préposés partout mais ça a pas changé là
2: here's Emily again talking to us about her research into class action lawsuits that predate the pandemic
6: so from what I could see it seemed like the conditions were already deteriorating pretty, they were pretty bad um, before the pandemic had, and before there was an outbreak in the facilities. Um, There was a class action lawsuit that had already been started last fall. And um, earlier in May, sort of the Montreal Gazette um, interviewed some family members in Montreal, uh, saying that the conditions in that CHSLD were already awful. And there was one woman who was even uh, going to visit her husband seven days a week to, provide, to sort of supplement his care because uh, they were already so understaffed and neglecting patients to a, such a point even before the pandemic had an outbreak the TMR facility, uh, there's two daughters of this, of this woman who, uh, were alleging what they called unacceptable hygienic conditions. And this was before the, before the COVID outbreak. Um, they described, um, her health having took a turn for the worse in 2017 because what they think is because of her treatment at the facility. Um, They, this woman suffered a partial dislocation of her right shoulder. Um, and they weren't able to figure out how that happened. Um, And she had a a UTI that was ignored for months before a test, which had to be requested um, by the um, family themselves and not by doctors. And there were two um, untrained nurses who had um, cared for her, both of whom ended up being fired, um, one of whom um, gave insulin when it wasn't indicated. It was meant for uh, the woman's roommate. And also incorrectly administered a suppository that was supposed to treat an infection and ended up having the woman like have a spend a whole night in pain so it's not just um sort of neglect that leads to like people dying without dignity or being left without dignity for days it's also things that are causing active pain and this is all before the pandemic even started so you can imagine it got a lot worse afterwards
2: So many of these problems seem to be tied to the fact that PABs are overworked and underpaid. There are two main positions at CERCEDES, nurses and orderlies. Nurses typically administer medicine and tend to the medical needs of patients. Orderlies tend to all the other needs of patients. They help feed those who can't eat on their own, they bathe people with limited mobility, they change the incontinence pads of those who wear them, etc. As Amy describes, they're the ones that first respond whenever patients need help.
1: I've noticed a lot that the PABs are overworked um and it's I see a bunch of like things that are saying like oh nurses should get paid more should be like compensated more and I do agree with that because some of the nurses that I see work extremely hard but um PABs actually I don't think they get I think they get paid a little over what I get paid and I get paid a little under 20 bucks per hour um and they really just, they do like everything. They're, they're, they're the ones that like change the patients, feed the patient, stuff like that. The PABs are just really severely overworked and underappreciated. And there's also a lot of them that are missing. Like for a form with like 30, 30 patients, sometimes they'll have like three PABs, which is ridiculous. Cause like you can't. You really just
2: can't have 10 patients per PAB. Nearly 82% of orderlies are women, and many of them are racialized. According to the CBC, the average annual salary for a full-time orderly at a Day in 2019 was $40,500, or just above $20 an hour at public facilities. Wages are lower at private residences. The provincial government says it has no record of the number of orderlies who are immigrants or asylum seeker, but the Maison d'Aiti estimates that about 1,200 of the 5,000 Haitian asylum seekers that the organization has worked with since 2017 are currently orderlies. Understaffing at CHSLD has been discussed for years. In the last provincial election, all parties proposed plans to address the chronic underfunding across the province's long-term care facilities. In 2019, the CAC minister responsible for seniors, Mariel Blaise, Announced a plan to hire 30,000 orderlies before 2022, but little has been released on what the plan entails and what, if anything, has been put into action. More recently, the CAC has declared its intentions to build more residences, but continue to neglect the system's existing problems. Here's Alexandra on the number of hours she and her colleagues are working. <inaudible>
5: Ah, mettons celles qui font de soir puis de nuit, ils travaillent sept jours sur ça Ils font pas de heures Mettons, moi oh. je fais des heures mais j'ai des jours de congé uh-huh. Mais eux autres, ils font juste ils font des chiffres de huit heures, mais je sais pas c'est quand leur donner leur donner congé. Honnêtement, il y en a bien mettons il y en a une là, ça fait au moins
3: soixante-dix jours là, qu'elle n'a pas de congé. Long term care has been Neglected for far too long. The workers are underpaid. The workforce, the facilities are understaffed. The facilities are so understaffed that they rely on families to do basic care. For example, at my father's facility, feeding is, is, is something that Families have to take on, on on their own in order to supplement because there just isn't enough staff to feed everybody. Exercise. There's not enough, you know, exercise isn't a part of my father's care plan at the facility because there's not enough staff to implement that. So as a family, we have to, we've had to in the past before the pandemic, create a network of volunteers to ensure that he has daily range of motion, which is essential for his quality of life and for, I would even say, for his life.
2: Clearly, being an orderly is hard work and a job that is central to the functioning of long-term care. Why, then, are orderlies so severely underpaid and overworked? To answer our question, here's No New Normal's James Ward with the history of Cére days in Quebec
4: relatively unique to Quebec as a system. I don't think there's anywhere else in North America that has uh, this kind of large, governmentally-run, long-term care facilities. So, like most of the Quebec healthcare system and the Canadian public healthcare system in general, uh, they date to the 60s, their origins date to the 60s. And before that, in Quebec, there was no uniform or unified long-term care system there were various facilities a lot of which were run by the church some of which were private and just in general though the burden of caring for the elderly was more placed on families and it was especially placed on female members of the family and that was actually some of the argument for the creation of the seish system was there was a sort of certain brand of feminism which argued that if you have these systems that can care for the elderly, then women will be more able to, you know, access the work marketplace and things like that. So in the 60s, the Quebec government started taking over various long-term care facilities that had already existed, a lot of the ones that were run by the church, and also started building its own. But at the beginning of all of this, these weren't called CSL days necessarily, they weren't part of like a single unified network. And they were, like, a lot of them were basically just public housing for the elderly, so, like, social housing that was rent-controlled but and might have a few facilities or care workers that were there for the people, the elderly people that were living there that might need assistance. But they weren't necessarily imagined as a place where people get medical care or as necessarily as a place where people go to die. There was almost a sort of utopian idealism about this that we're going to create a state-run system of homes for the elderly, where they'll be able to live independent lives. They'll be happy. They'll have be there won't be a burden on their families who will then be able to you know help Quebec modernize. So there was this really kind of big idea in the creation of a lot of these facilities, like a lot of the idealist projects, utopian projects of the 60s, it didn't necessarily do so well, not for no reason. What became the Seychelles system in the 80s and 90s, as everything was centralized in the name of efficiency, but what became that system ended up getting steadily gutted and privatized. The Seychelles Hildes became more of like a specific long-term care medical institution. And the requirements to get in them started tightening, meaning that you had to be sicker and sicker to get into them. There was this movement towards deinstitutionalization and increasing the requirements to get into one. Another thing that happened was a move towards the private sector. So the number of privately administered social days expanded radically during that period, uh, during the 80s and 90s. And uh, there was also sort of vague efforts to move people to supply solutions for so that people could keep living at home. But in the end, these things were didn't really get funded with the same kind of funding that the Seychelles days were receiving. So you now have a situation now where there are less places available in the entire Seychelles Day network in Quebec. But the number of elderly people as like a demographic, not necessarily as people who need to go into a Seychelles Day, but as a demographic that's... Kind of the target demographic of these services has more than doubled since the 60s most people who are going into say so they are probably just statistically are not going to live very long in that right so they become the system of hospice care basically and i think it's interesting though that they're not called hospice care right they're called long-term care facilities which the idea being that they're somewhere where you could live They're somewhere where you could live your life while needing medical care, perhaps, but they're there for the living of lives, at least in theory. But in practice, they're more really become places where people go to die.
2: Although CERCELDs were originally envisioned as a social democratic state institution, that vision was clearly hampered by the decades of neoliberal austerity that followed. And as a result, public facilities are severely underfunded and private for-profit facilities are under-regulated sers days are therefore unable to provide adequate care to those requiring full-time or long-term care. But as Jonathan notes, most residents can access other options.
0: Living inside an institution is very difficult, actually. Most, um, lots of people um, give up and just straight up uh, give up and die, um, to let themselves die because it's not um, a way to live a life, actually, It's a place where you go to die. Uh, There's barely any support inside facilities. Uh, It's only about your physical survival. All the social needs are not taken into account. And living in a facility means that you are excluded from society. You become invisible. You become an object that you uh, warehouse inside um, a building. So you lose your citizenship when you end up in a place like this. And it's extremely difficult from day-to-day to be day, uh, um, uh, motivated to live, actually, Uh The only thing that's keeping me going is the hope of going back to live in the community and to be able to have a normal life with my partner, to be able to have uh, friends over and uh, just uh, a normal life, Mm -hmm. things that everyone else is taking for, for granted.
2: If Ceres Saldés are not places for people to live their lives, what are they for? To extend people's lives, but in what conditions? We need to do both. Provide assistance for people requiring full-time care so that they can continue to live their lives. And provide adequate care for those at the end of their lives, so they can live the last months or years with their families or communities.
0: There's no uh, support system for people with uh, extensive needs to uh, live at home. As soon as you require a bit more assistance than the average uh, person, uh, you end up um, in the facility. They refuse to provide you uh, with the home uh, care that you need. So the limits in Quebec is about 44 hours of assistance per week. After that, uh, they refuse to provide you with anything else. if you need uh, access to services to stay alive, you yeah, have no choice but to go into a facility. Mm-hmm. It's very simple actually. it's just to provide me with the funds uh directly so that I can manage my own assistance so that I can hire my assistant uh, determine how they're gonna be trained and manage the day to day activities. so it's about providing me with uh, part of the money that it costs to keep me here so that uh, I am able to do that. And um, it's cheaper to do it this way as well. So there's no um, reason not to to allow that because it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to keep me here at the moment. And with um, part of that money I could live at home and be able... To work, to pay taxes, and to fulfill my duties as a citizen. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be uh, taken charge by the state. I don't want them to take care of me. I can take care of myself, and I just want to to be an independent. I uh, built a, uh, a new program, uh, which we call a surf. Uh, A self-directed personal assistance program which would allow people with uh, severe disabilities to live at home and those who have less severe disabilities could benefit as well because the issue is that everything is medicalized and what we're proposing is a social approach. So currently you cannot have assistance to go to work, to have a social life, to be able to travel and have a normal life. Everything that's outside the home is not covered by the current support system. With this new program, it, it will make it so that people with disabilities will be included in society. It's um, another way of doing things, another way of um, organizing the assistance and it makes it so that facilities are no longer required uh, in, the, in their current form. At the end of the day, most people who live in long term care facilities can live in the community. We just need to provide the assistance that's needed, that's adapted to the needs of everyone, and this include uh, caregivers as well. So there's, there are ways that we can make it so that you don't know, think facilities are not necessary. And this include people with severe uh, disabilities, even uh, seniors with disabilities, with um, Alzheimer's, dementia, for example. Um, so I think we should leave no one behind. Everyone should have the choice of where and how they live and with who they live. Yeah, we've um, been pushing very hard the last few years to make this a reality. We've met with all um, levels of government, from the ministers uh, to the deputy ministers and all those in between. And the issue we're having is that this government, the local government, is pushing for more long-term care facilities. They want to create um, new long-term care facilities that they call uh, Maison designing, the houses for the elderly, and they want to keep segregating people with disabilities and seniors as well. And um, they put all their eggs into that basket, and there seems to be no... Um, no motivation to, to change that. So it's a political issue. Mm-hmm. And to change that, we're going to have to pressure them to change. It's to provide all the assistance that people need. So we're talking about personal assistance for the day-to-day uh, living uh, task. We're talking about technical aid, uh, transport, housing, a whole host of options so that people's needs are met in the community. Right now, most of the money goes towards institution, and there's barely nothing left for community-based services. And the best example of what can be done is what they did in Australia in the last few years. They created a new uh, scheme. Uh, it's an insurance scheme. Um, where people uh, receive the funds directly and they choose how they're going to spend uh, that money to support uh, themselves. So you got the whole range of solution. It's very inclusive, so you have choice and control over how you will um, have the assistance you need to stay at home. And that scheme has been uh, in place for now, three or four years in Australia and it's providing uh, very good results so I think we need to invest in community-based services and it's an issue not only in Quebec but in Canada as a whole from coast to coast so an insurance program to meet those needs is, is a must I think
2: Imagining alternatives to the CRS system for those who need long-term care or full-time support requires reimagining our communities. As Jonathan suggests, a medical solution is insufficient. We need social solutions, but it's hard to imagine social solutions when the contemporary family structure leaves so little room in terms of time and money for caring for those who need it. Beyond that, the COVID-19 pandemic and both government and social negligence regarding the conditions at Seyaches demonstrates that those who need long-term care, be it elderly people or people with disabilities, are not a priority. With profit and efficiency as central goals of our long-term care facilities, these institutions will continue to fail their residents and workers. As long as care work is undervalued, which is to say feminized and racialized, the lives of those who need care and of those who provide it will continue to be viewed as disposable
3: care for our elders care for disabled folks care for the workers it's been neglected for far too long there's uh there's a growing movement of people who say that we should abolish days and that we need to move towards home care for all with um enough support to allow that kind of living you know i I know that it's my father's dream to live at home, and it's many people's dreams to live at home. But the, the current, the way that we um, take care of our elders, of disabled individuals in our society doesn't allow for that. There's not enough resources, or the priority of resources is not put towards giving quality care for our elders, and for disabled people like my father, and it's wrong. We need to reimagine long-term care completely, if not, you know, abolish the current system that these individuals exist under. Today we're opening our first exhibition at the Jewish Museum of Montreal on Saint-Laurent and Duluth. Um, um, we have eight windows full of testimonies from residents and workers and volunteers who have gone into the Seychelles. days. and we have artwork and slogans calling to the government to protect this space, to protect the residents, to protect the workers. We're just trying to say that the current situation and what has happened here in Quebec is unaccessible. The death rate is unacceptable and the the government should be held accountable for the situation and they should continue to protect the spaces because we're not out of the woods. We're still at risk. My father's facility is still they're still there fighting for their lives. The workers are fighting as hard as they can, but they need support the COVID-19 pandemic has pulled back the curtain on systemic racism, systemic ableism, and systemic ageism. And that's what we're seeing in the CHSL days where you have a majority of the workers are women of color and the policies in place do not support them. You have residents who are elderly and disabled and I think I think the pandemic has exposed that those people are out of sight, they're out of mind, and we're willing to sacrifice them. And my message is that our loved ones, we're not willing to let our loved ones be sacrificed and letting our elders be sacrificed. These spaces, these populations, these workers have been neglected for far too long. And I hold Lego and his government personally responsible for that situation, that long-term failure, and also the the failure of all of the deaths that we have seen in the Seychelles days. The situation is completely unacceptable.
2: Listening to No New Normal, a special edition of CKUT's Off the Hour. No New Normal examines the structural rifts laid bare by the COVID-19 pandemic and the convergent struggles that have come as a result. Today's episode was Crisis of Care on COVID-19 in days. I'm Athena Khalid with Emily Black and James Ward. Thanks to Gaumaha Devan for her support and to Sasha Kay for the theme. Thanks as well to Alexandra, Amy, Kitra, and Jonathan for taking the time to talk to us. Tune in on Friday, July 3rd at 5 p.m. for our next episode on the COVID-19 outbreak in prisons.